Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Thursday, September 16th, 2021. Drew, you've got to be happy, a show you love. Uh, Adult Swim's Primal took home the Best Animated Program Award at this year's Primetime Creative Emmy Awards this past weekend. But did you see which episode from season two actually took home the Emmy, The Plague of Madness? Oh, okay. The zombie episode. Yes, the one where Spear and Fang are being pursued by a seismosaur that's been infected with a flesh-eating virus. That was one of the more genuinely disturbing pieces of animation I've ever seen. I mean, beautifully done. Great, great work. But real nightmare fuel? So it's kind of interesting that Gennady's peers chose this one. It was up against Bob's Burgers and the Simpsons. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it took down the Titans, Jim. Which I always appreciate. I love a good underdog story, especially if they're infected with a flesh-eating virus. <laughs> well, there we go. Speaking of the Emmys, though, we talked on a recent fine-tuning about how Jessica Walters had received a, an Emmy nomination in her voice work on the most recent season of Archer, which is an effect. Sadly, Walters' excellent work as Mallory Archer wasn't recognized with an Emmy for Best Character voice work, uh, Voiceover Performer. Maya Rudolph, who voices Connie the Hormone Monstrous on Big Mouth, uh, which streams on Netflix, took home the award instead. By the way, the actual Emmys for actors will be presented this coming Sunday night, uh, September 19th. The Creative Arts Emmys, which typically celebrates the tech side of things, uh, were held over several nights this past weekend. And speaking of things that were held over this past weekend, did you get to catch any of the the stuff from the Lightbox Expo online? I did not. Well, first of all, I, you know, I know how much you enjoyed uh, Sony Pictures Animation's Mitchells versus the Machines. They had one panel with Mike Lasker, who was the visual effects supervisor, and he was joined by Alan Hawkins, the head of character animation. And they talked about how Mitchell's versus the Machine developed its distinctive visual style. And believe it or not, Drew, it all built off of the... Do you remember the dad's coat in that with like the faux fur around the collar? Yeah, of course. That literally drove the look of the film. And in fact, the gentleman who wrote the movie, that's actually his dad's coat. Mike Lasker actually told the story about how thrilled he was when they finally actually brought the coat in. That that I guess the film's creator went home, got his dad's coat and brought it in and they could look at it up close. Uh, Another panel that was worth checking out. Kitty Walsh, who is the director of development at Disney Junior, and Emily Carson, who's a manager of development at Disney Television Animation, they talked about what goes into pitching a show idea for the mouse. And I just want to say this up front to anybody who's dreamed of creating an animated series for Disney. Be ready for disappointment. Only one out of a hundred pitches gets accepted. For example, right now, Disney Television Animation has over 70 shows in various stages of the development, and they're all fighting for those one or two slots that open up each year. Sounds like a tough, tough gig. Let's see, what else? Oh, oh, you would have loved this one. Uh, Asia Ellington, Cameron Thompson, and Juan Garrido did this absolutely killer presentation entitled Mickey Mouse 
the caricature on heritage. And what they basically talked about was how the various artists, uh, for example, Disney legend like Mary Blair, who influenced the look the look of those wonderful the, the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse shorts. And when you see characters from Disney feature films like Cinderella or Belle from Beauty and the Beast, or the Three Little Pigs from Disney's Silly Symphonies and these new Mickey Mouse shorts, that's actually supposed to be a nod to Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck cartoons that were done in the 30s, like uh, 1936's Mickey's Polo Match and Donald's 30, shirt from 39, The Autograph Town. Those shorts feature caricatures of well-known Hollywood stars of the day, like Laurel and Hardy and Shirley Temple. But with the Paul Ruddish Mickey Mouse shorts, the feeling is that the studio's nearly 100-year-old now library of cartoon characters are really Disney celebrities of today. So that's why, for example, we saw the old crone from Snow White co-starring with Mickey in Once Upon an Apple. The one I wish I'd gotten to see, and again, this is kind of the downside of Lightbox Expo, is that these panels only run for the length of the show, and then they disappear off the web. But there was one where the Rhea and the Last Dragon production designer, Paul Felix, and a team of artists uh, from Walt Disney Animation Studios uh, explained how they created the look of Kumandra through collaboration. And really, really wish I'd, I'd, I'd gotten to see that one. But again, it's the Comic-Con thing all over again. You know, you just can't see everything and you just, you have to prepare for disappointment. Anyway, lots of animation news happened over the last seven days and news portion of today's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. The big, big news has to be that coming out of Leica Studios, that they've, they've already started work on their sixth stop-motion film, Wildwood, which the script for this has been around forever, right? Or, or yeah, been around well, they, for a while. Yeah, they first announced the project in 2011. Wow. So, yeah, this has been around for 10 whole years. I mean, I'm it's amazing that they still have the rights to it. But it's it's finally happening. Chris Butler mm-hmm. really is the kind of unsung hero of Leica um having, you know, written on Coraline and directed and wrote Paranorman and mm-hmm. wrote Kubo and wrote and directed Missing Link. I mean, he is a total genius and he wrote the script for this and uh Travis Knight Mm-hmm. is is back to direct, which is kind of a surprise as well. Yes, because he stepped away to do live action for a while. He did Bumblebee for Paramount back in 2018. And, and wasn't he then attached to Warner's $6 million man thing that they were going to do with Donnie Wahlberg? Yes. Yeah, he's been attached to a few uh, live action things, but... Mm-hmm. We will see. I guess he's either doing this while in pre-production on some other stuff mm-hmm. or he's back at the studio full time. I don't really know. But, yeah, it seemed like he was he was being courted by live action for a little while there. One of my absolute favorite stop motion films is, uh, well, the, the last one he directed, Kubo and the Two Strings from August of 2016. This is great news that he's directing uh, stop motion again. Do you want to talk about the, the log line for this one? The the story, which is based on the novel from Colin Melloy. Is that correct? Or, or yeah. From the Decemberists. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So here's the log line. Okay. Beyond Portland's city limits lies Wildwood. 
You're not supposed to go there. You're not even supposed to know it exists. But Prue McKeel is about to enter this enchanted wonderland. Her baby brother, Mac, has been taken by a murder of crows into the forest depths. And she, along with her hapless classmate, Curtis, is going to get him back. Prue might think she's too old for fairy tales, but she's just found herself at the center of one. One filled with strange talking animals, roguish bandits, and powerful figures with the darkest intentions. So it's kind of fun that they're setting a movie in or- in Portland when they the studio is in Portland. You've actually been up to Leica on one or two press events, right? Yeah, or- it's it's an amazing place. It's really a kind of wonderland. It's I mean, it's you know you you visit any animation studio and it's pretty it's pretty amazing the kind of level of imagination on display, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I, I don't know how anyone would get there or visit, but if you can, do it, because it's really something else. This is a constant refrain of this show, that, that Drew Taylor gets to do cool stuff. Speaking of which, though, you've already seen all nine of the shorts for Star Wars Visions? I actually, I've come up short, Jim, because I, I haven't seen three. So I have three to look for. These are... These are much longer than Doug Days or they're, you know, infinitely longer than the Goofy shorts. Really? Um, yeah. So they're between, I would say, 13 and 22 minutes each. Really? Oh, yeah. holy cow. Okay. Out ahead of these shorts dropping on Disney Plus on Wednesday, September 22nd, Disney Plus claims that they were produced by some of the world's best anime creators. Does Having seen six of them, would you say that holds up? Yeah, it, it's really amazing. Um, I think you're going to love it, Jim. Um, okay. Just the kind of variety of storytelling and the animation is absolutely, absolutely beautiful. I mean, it really runs the, the gamut here. Mm-hmm. And I just can't wait for everyone to watch them because they're cool. They're very, very cool. Did you have a favorite out of the pile of six that you saw? The two that I really loved that I've seen so far, there's one called Tatooine Rhapsody, Mm -hmm. which is kind of about a, it's about a rock band on Tatooine, Mm -hmm. including a unlikely member of the band who may or may not be connected to our favorite gangster syndicate on Tatooine. Um, And it's very much like it's, you know, it's kind of reminded me of Halix, the uh, Disneyland band. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, (laughs) oh, God. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And Uh. it's got a really cool it's got a really cool vibe. I really like the animation style. And there's another one called the Ninth Jedi. Mm -hmm. That is a 22 minute epic um, animated by production IG and is set during the High Republic or maybe like maybe the waning days of the High Republic, which were recently explored in a series of Disney publishing Mm-hmm. books and that one is super cool it's all about the the manufacturing of lightsabers on this kind of satellite world and really really some great twists and turns and, and just beautiful animation so those are the two that's that stood out for me but i will i will report back you and i will have to have a whole post-mortem uh next week okay uh, after they come out these drop on september 22nd and then october 1st We get Lego Star Wars Terrifying Tales, which I think we talked about on last week's show. But just today, five brand new Lego Star Wars shorts showed up on the Lego YouTube channel. Yeah, very early for Halloween stuff and also very current because there's a a lot of um, 
Mandalorian content mm-hmm. in there. So did you watch any of it? No, no, no. I mean, again, literally, Drew said to me, the, we should talk about this. And in the middle of the pile, it's like, when did that come in? And then like today. Yeah. So Today, yeah. We'll tell yeah. you what, I did make time to watch the new Star Trek Lower Decks. Oh, Jesus, here it comes. No, no, no. I can't talk about it because I fell asleep during it. So okay, I have to go back and watch it. And I, I will also watch these five Lego shorts. And we'll circle back on to, to the next show. You, By the way, you mentioned The Mandalorian just a moment ago. And we were also just talking about the Creative Arts Primetime Emmy Awards. And they did, Mandalorian did really well on Tech Side of the Street. They got Best Outstanding Visual Effects for a Season of Movie, Best Sound Mixing, Outstanding Cinematography, Outstanding Music Composition, Outstanding Prosthetic Makeup, and Stunt Quarters and Stunt Performance. And they've got to be thrilled with that. Yeah, did, did you see that Ludwig, uh, Ludwig Gorenson was at the Black Panther Live thing at the Hollywood Bowl? And he was introduced by Kevin Feige and he said, this man just won an Emmy an hour ago. Oh. Uh, which was really cool. I didn't. So. Oh, that's a great story. Holy yeah. cow. Well, it's been a great year for the streaming services. And speaking of which, you were also sent along word about HBO Max's new Preschool programming block Cartoonito? Is am I saying that right? Cartoonito, yeah, I think Cartoonito. so. Yeah. All right. So this is a nine-hour slate of original and vintage series with educational themes that will will air Monday through Friday from six a.m. to two p.m. in the linear Cartoon Network channel but also will be able, available on demand over on HBO Max, right? Under, I guess, yes. cr- creating a cartoonito umbrella under that. And so you've seen uh, some of the, what is it, Tom and Jerry in New York? Is that the show, name of the show? No, this is not Tom and Jerry in New York. This oh. is called, what is this called? It's it's a educational Tom and Jerry oh. show. Mm-hmm. Tom and Jerry time. And it's, I've seen a little bit of animation from it and it's like very graphic sort of um, 60s style animation with Tom and Jerry basically teaching, you know, like numbers and stuff like that. It's it's very, very cool. But the animation style is just absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And there's some really fun new shows in here. Like, did you see the Bat Wheels thing where there's like talking car of versions of Batman's yes. car? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I have seen some of these things bubble up. Ethan Hawke is Batman, so that's <laughs> kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if it, if that's you know the old Jeffrey Katzenberg playbook. It's like Ethan Hawke has a kid. Let's hit him up to be you know a voice in this, so he's, right. his kid kid can hear him work. Well, now, speaking of cartoon characters from the past who've been making a big splash in 2021, Cruella, the live-action prequel to Disney's 1961 animated hit, 101 Dalmatians, was a a big success earlier this year. And in a few minutes, uh, Drew and I are going to share an interview that we did with Craig Gillespie, the director of this most recent Walt Disney Studios release. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Drew sent me a pile of news-related items for this week that he wanted us to discuss on fine-tuning. And I have to say the most intriguing one out of the pile was this Stephen Curry deal that NBC Universal made. Yeah. You know, I love Stephen Curry because he produces my favorite linear, we'll say, mm-hmm. show on TV, Holy Moly. Jim, mm-hmm. which is the uh, extreme uh, mini golf competition, which the finale is airing tonight. So, you know, it, we got to wrap this up, Jim. Is it the season of Holy Moly been the one in 3D, though? That was, was that the hype? Yes, 3, 3D and 2D. Yeah. The, yeah. There we go. Okay. Because yeah. Holy Moly and Wipeout hold this weird place in my heart because I enjoy watching people get hit with giant foam-covered spinny things. And Yes. Dear Lord, both of these shows. I mean, so he produces this. That's interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, it's an interesting partnership that, that he's, he's made with DreamWorks. I like that it said family sports and faith-based content. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Jim, that is, those are, that's a weird cocktail. He's got a first look development deal with the Universal Studios Group for scripted and unscripted television projects and DreamWorks animation for kids and family content. Yeah, I would guess that mo- that means mostly TV shows, but mm-hmm. who knows? Could be a feature in there as well. I was looking at a couple of the pieces in the trades about this, and they did also mention that, you know, when you're looking at NBC Universal, you have to also consider Universal Creative, the folks who do stuff in the theme parks. And it's like, yeah. I hate to say this, but if they were a holy moly experience, I would queue up. <laughs> Mind you, I'd get a hit injury from the. It's always the first putt, isn't it? When they get knocked into the water. Yeah, it's amazing. I I want to I want to visit. I want to watch them shoot it desperately, Jim, because they shoot it all over like a week. Um, in the middle of January, at the in the middle of the night, so it is absolutely California at its coldest. They do it in oh, Santa Clarita. Don't they actually shoot it at Golden Oaks? The the, the Disney. Yes. Yes. Oh, now we gotta go. All yeah. right. That was one of the things about Wipeout, because every so often you could sort of see in the background Golden Oaks, and it's like, oh, I yeah. want to go there. I want to see this. So yeah, just we got we got to bundle up. I mean, you'll be ready for, <laughs> from your you know New Hampshire. That, that, winters, this is true. But, okay. Yeah. I'll bring you one of Nancy's twenty five hundred coats. So we've got the Steve Curry deal, but but more to the point, 
We have this great interview with Craig Gillespie, who most of you folks probably know from 2017's I, Tonya. But I think, Drew, you were the one who pointed out that prior to that, he had done quite a bit of time at the Mouse House, right? Yeah, he did the Fright Night remake, which I really love, Mm -hmm. um, as well as Million Dollar Arm Mm -hmm. and The Finest Hours. So he's been doing these kind of like underappreciated gems. There we go. That's the appropriate way to describe them. I really, really, truly enjoyed The Finest Hours to the point that I actually drove down to the Cape to check out the actual boat in in the actual harbor. Still exists. But again, yeah, you're right. These underappreciated gems that didn't quite find their audience the first time around, but that'll change with Cruella. Didn't we hear just last month that, that there's a, a, a sequel in development? Yes. I tried my best, Jim. To, we try to get it out of him a little bit in this interview. Yeah. Listen to what he has to say about where the sequel to Cruella could go. You know, obviously you're adapting this amazing animated classic. Sort of where did you start off? in this whole process? I started off, I guess you'd say late in this process. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they've done a nice job. It's like, I mean, they'd been working on this for five years, I think, before I came along. And there'd been some great writers on it and some really good work done on it. But, you know, having had seven writers on it, there was, there was, a, lot of, there was a lot of stuff like sort of being, like, you know, put together in a way that wasn't quite cohesive for okay. me. And um, I'd been just working with Tony McNamara on a script who did the favorite with Emma and his sensibility and his tone, like the tone that I really wanted to go for in this was exactly what we felt we needed. And so he did a a brilliant job of making it feel cohesive and, and all that banter and that dialogue. But, you know, the really strong structural moments were there and like, you know, the, the reveal of the, the turn of who the Baroness is and, Mm -hmm. And those things. So it, it was just, it was really finding the tone of the movie. Was there ever more of an overt homage to the original in the earlier versions? Did you guys, you know? No, it's okay. honestly, it's like it was structurally, it was not far from where we are at all. Okay. And I like that, you know, the, the, the dogs are in there and uh, they're certainly part of the, the motivation of what's going on. But I liked that we, you know, we could sort of separate ourselves a little bit from that. And, and it is amazingly, there's so little backstory to Cruella that it gave us a lot of freedom. So when you approach Cruella and you have this, this really vivid setting of London in the 60s, recreating that had to be tough, right? Actually, I, I you know, Sean Bailey called me and he said, what do you think about Emma Stone playing Corella in 1970s London with a whole like punk soundtrack and like the Ramones and, and Clash. And I was like, sold. <laughs> so for me, mm-hmm. the idea was really exciting. And I just went back and just started pulling so many visuals from that era, you know, Notting Hill with the squatters and King's Road. And there's just so much photography that's like really exciting from that period. for better or worse, I didn't approach this as a Disney film. And it was funny, like as every department head came in and they'd start to like present, I'm like, and, 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 you know, Disney movies are amazing, but we have this interesting uh, opportunity here where we're doing a villain. So we get to sort of step outside of that, those parameters a little bit more, I think in stretch. And I I really just approached this as a film and set in this reality. 
And which is, that was another interesting thing. A lot of times there is like this, this, this fantasy world or these magical powers or things going on, you know, in a lot of Disney things. And this is just you know, firmly set in reality. Mm. So we, I, I really wanted to lean into that. And we shot at 32 locations around London. Like as much as it's like, I, I kind of, I, I just did a, you know, a huge film in an independent way. Like, so, you know, as much as we could be, we're on location, uh, shooting in real places and, uh, and leaning into all that grit, like all those, those photographs were sent out to all the departments and they'd come in and I'd say, all right, first of all, don't think of this like a Disney film, just look at it as a film. And uh, it just gave them this freedom to really go for things. I love that. Uh, I wanted to ask about the, there is a lot of animation in this movie, obviously, uh, both with the dogs and also there's some great sort of graphic stuff that, that you do with her walking through newspaper text and, and all of that stuff. And I was wondering what your approach to that was, especially because, you know, a lot of the like animal rights groups love it when you use a lot of animal CGI because then there aren't yeah. real animals there. And there is this amazing kind of animal rights thread through the movie. So I was wondering if that was something you thought about when kind of conceiving this. Amazingly, um, no, well, not that I wasn't thinking about the animal rights people, but <laughs> I was just going for, you know, what's the best execution of this? And I kind of, NPC do an amazing job. You know, we had the crew from The Lion King, but to make their life more difficult, <laughs> I, I would shoot real dogs first oh. as much as they could. And most of the time the dogs couldn't do it, but we'd maybe get a piece or a part of the, a part of the scene. So then, they, so then their bar is so much higher because they are now intercutting between real dogs and fake dogs. So, you know, there are scenes like, you know, with uh, Estella when she's in the car with her mother there, the conversation before she goes inside and she's holding the puppy. Half of those scenes are the real puppy and half are CG. Wow. So they did an amazing job. And like, you know, you see the three Dalmatians running out and jumping in the car at the dog bath. One of those dogs is real and the other two are CG. So they wow, really, like, it was a, they did an absolutely amazing job, you know, working right. with that. Speaking of CG, though, do you have the scenes at the very end where Emma goes off the cliff and is rescued out at sea? And how much of that was a throwback to your time in the finest hours, you know, with, with all of that CG water work? Uh, yeah, this was uh, uh, much easier than the finest hours. <laughs> Um, that was, you know, that was such a small amount and, and they're so dialed in with the water and stuff. We shot that in a tank, obviously. Mm -hmm. So, but then they, they do all the extensions. I mean, there's 1850 effect shots in this film. Holy cow. It was an it was a year of my life. <laughs> three, you know, we do three sessions a week and, and it, the attention to detail from, from MPC and so, I mean, just, you got to start out with the animation and then do the muscle work and then do the lighting and the fur and, you know, get enough personality that we're not crossing a line into fantasy that we're still staying in reality and just constantly. And so, you know, that, that level of detail and excellence that they did, it was, it, it was, you know, very time consuming, but ultimately worth it. I mean, did you get any kind of pushback from the powers that be? Like, no, no, no. I could this, did the dog really need an eye patch? You know, that kind no. of thing. I mean, was that? No, was there, I, I mean, Disney, no, actually, amazingly, and that was something, um, 
<laughs> that was something that I, um, you know, I added in the uh, the whole sort of uh, the rat the rat part of the heist mm-hmm. with that black and white ball. So you know, the idea of putting Wink in a, a rat outfit, and you know, that was all that was something that was added in. And the only pushback we got was there was concern about how many rats we would have. <laughs> like, where's that? Where's that? Where do we cross the line there? But uh, wink, wink in a rat outfit, they were okay with. <laughs> wow. Well, obviously you are getting ready for another one. Are you thinking about the visual effects already? Are you sort of, is this going to you know, be starts, easier? I, the, the, all of that is like, honestly, secondary for me. It starts with like, what's a really fun set piece? Yeah. Like, what would be exciting to do? And then we sort of figure it out from there, you know, it's, uh, um, and that that's, you know, we've got such great support from Disney that that's, that's the really fun part of it. You know, there's like a lot of these set pieces with stuff that sort of evolved, you know, like all these red carpet events and the garbage truck turning up. And I mean, the movie has been out so long, I guess we can say where the movie ends up. Well, Jim just spoiled the ending too. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a gift. <laughs> we are, we are in a more conventionally, 101 Dalmatians setting at the end of this movie. Right. I imagine that it might be a little bit harder to upend expectations when we are so firmly entrenched in something that we know. But okay, you're shaking your head. Tell me. I think think there's a long way between, there's a long way between where she is right now and where she ends up in 101 Dalmatians, which she's she's fully gone to the dark side in 101 Dalmatians. (laughs) Okay, so there's still there's still yeah. some humanity. She there. she is fully committed to being a villain. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so and and the interesting part of where we ended up at the end of Corella was, which I thought was interesting. I, I kind of I kind of equated it with that graduate moment on the back of the bus where she's been striving to win this battle and get to this point. And then she never really considered what she sacrificed to get there. Right. Right. And so she has this con- she's conflicted. And like the sacrifices and, you know, to, to get to this, like, you know, which is an interesting theme, I think, to get to, a, you know, what, what do you sacrifice along the way to, for your success and what is success? Right. Uh, I think Jim and I are both wondering what the battles were like. Did you ever try to get that cigarette holder in there? Was that ever a conversation? <laughs> Did Bill Pete design the original Corella, Jim? Yeah, that's, okay. I would love to have, you know, that's the cane sort of became that, that appendage. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I, I kind of realized, you know, pretty early on, we were never going to get the cigarette hold <laughs> in a Disney film. The thing I was excited that we got in there was the taser. Okay. <laughs> that was a discussion. Yeah. <laughs> For me, half the fun of watching this film was, was the two Emmas, you know, sort of going at it. And the fact that you had Emma Thompson being full on villain with this and sort of, you know, Emma feeling her way. And was she the, the hard wall, so to speak, that, you know, Emma Stone had to bounce off of that performance? Or? Yeah, that was the, that's, it was actually what was really fun about the film is that we're dealing with two villains. Mm-hmm. Like it, having one villain in a show that's, you know, it's kind of commonly known as like the villain's always the fun character to play. Mm-hmm. And, and this was the two leads were both villains. Mm-hmm. So, and in, in a way we could really go further with the Baroness because the worse she was, the more acceptable Corella was. <laughs> so, you know, she is, you know, she is pretty heinous, the Baroness in terms of, you know, everything that she's doing. And it just, it just makes you root for Corella in a way that gives her more freedom. One of the things I love about this movie, which I, I, 
loved almost everything about the movie uh, <laughs> is that you don't fall into the trap of an origin story where you have to explain every single part of the character and the reveals are, are presented in a really fun way. So I was wondering how you were, how you were navigating that area of like, do we really, you know, like in Solo where the guy kind of names him Solo at the airport checkout, you're like, what? we didn't need to know this. Um, you know, how did you kind of get through those potentially choppy waters? I, it's honestly, it's like the most conversation we had was, was, was actually figuring out the evolution of her becoming Corella and was this something that was ingrained in her? Is it nature versus nurture? It was a lot of those conversations and, and you know, it's that internal battle of like, you know, is she, is she like embracing her true self? So it was more those themes and, mm -hmm. and the actual, uh, and that's sort of, that's what dictated a lot of the journey. We found it actually, it, the more we were diving into her performance with Emma, the more complicated it was because she has about five different versions of Corella, depending emotionally where she is. Right. You know, the first, the first time you see her in the red dress, she's just playing a character. Like she just right. throws it on that night and didn't expect to be doing any dialogue. She thought she'd walk in and walk out, you know, so right. she's kind of fumbling through it. Then she discovers, you know, about her mother and she goes full dark Corella. This is as like mean as she gets. And she kind of gets a little unhinged through that second act. Then she has a, like, a, a realization that she's going to try and merge her two personalities in a way, the Stella and Corella, and, and find that balance, which is more of the third act. And then ultimately realizes that she's not sure that she even wants it. Right. <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> you know, so she, she's got, got a lot of nuance to the way that she has to play each, each scene. Right. You know, like she's almost, she's almost doing a bad performance in in black and white ball because she's fumbling through it. She's got, you know, th that two pages of dialogue sitting with the Baroness and she's kind of winging it, you know, and it's kind of like a nervous thing for an actor to be like, is this too goofy or is this? <laughs> right. Yeah. You've got that emotional through line, but at the same time, you've got to do these giant set pieces, like not just the black and white ball, but also there's a heist going on while the black and white ball is going on or the two parties that basically bookend the film, you know, said at the Baroness's castle, I would have loved to have been in the, the meeting where, all right, we need a hundred people dressed like Cruella for the crowd seats, you know, and it just, it, how many? You know? I think um, it's like 400. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, that was always in the script. That was such a great set piece. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we had these, we had these landing points that we knew we were going to get to in certain places. Paul Walter Hauser, uh, mm -hmm. dressed as Cruella wasn't in the script, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was, and it was this, that was sort of the constant, the constant sort of, which I enjoy the, the dance of like, how much humor can you inject in these like, serious moments and where we starting to lose the audience there in terms of the gravity of what's going on. The way you guys deepened Horace and Jasper and made them into real characters as opposed to, you know, these sort of bumbling foils and, I love late in the film where they basically call Cruella on going too dark, you know, and just sort yeah. of pull her back a bit. They were, I mean, we had such great actors with Joe Fry and, and Paul Waterhouse. That I was so thrilled to get both of them. And family was, you know, which was, I, I absolutely agree with, there's a large theme that, you know, Disney wanted to focus on it. And that nucleus is the family, the three of them. So the, between the th those three actors in a room together, 
it's like the first one of the first scenes we're doing with the three of them is at birthday for her in, in the lair. And, you know, Joel comes in, he's like, Hey, you know, are you okay if I play a guitar? And I, I sort of came up with this like way to sing happy birthday. He's like, absolutely. <laughs> and I say, look, Hey guys, by the way, I put a name on the cake. Let's have the cake be stolen. <laughs> so they, that's all like improvising. Who's Judy? She may be hungry. You know, and it's just that them getting to like riff together. The other interesting thing is how you bring in Roger and Anita and sort of weave them through the story. And I imagine they will take a yeah. bigger part. And that was this. sort of the, the yeah. challenge of that real estate of how much mm-hmm. with this, we're trying to jam so much into this, but then we do, we do ultimately need to get to 101 Dalmatians and, and like, mm-hmm. and that their story needs to make sense for how they connect and what their backstories were. were. And so like Roger, you know, dabbling with the piano and, and those things. So there was, yeah, there was sort of a lot of figuring out there on, on how much interaction or how much presence they have in this. Well, I know we have to go soon, but I know, and I know it's early days and you probably have five more movies and 20 more uh, Washington Mutual commercials to shoot, but uh, where, where are we, where are we on Tuella? I'm just going to throw that title out there. Working title Tuella. Um, <laughs> you should time that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you have you started thinking uh, about this uh it's very early days but there's some really but there are definitely some ideas floating around for where this could go which are exciting you know which i think make it worth coming back for uh cruella in the 80s <laughs> it's not <laughs> the 80s <laughs> not the 80s oh I wow so. I, I guess we're pretty close to the 80s maybe it would yeah. be the 80s but uh, it's no it's just more like what just you know taking taking this world and 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 running with it like she's she's kind of starting out on her career now which is is really exciting so what obstacles she's going to have now like where where her demon's going to be is it the exterior or the interior right and and tony's back so are you do you have more confidence kind of coming at this on the ground floor rather than being brought in yeah it it does make it easy to start with the page one you know Mm -hmm. right right I also wanted to ask, you know, the first, the original animated movie is famous for this, this process called xerography and it had these great scratchy lines. And I, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that, that you and Nicholas kind of tried to emulate that a little bit in the live action photography. Was there ever conversation about that or is that something you thought about? No, we we always wanted that sort of grittiness and and we actually shot everything with Corella. Her world is shot on 35 and everything with the Baroness is shot in 65, which is oh, a much really? more, oh. much, you know, it's a much larger chip and uh, you, you get a lot more detail. It just feels a little like more lush. You know, there's just mm-hmm. so much more detail to the, the chip. So we would switch formats depending on, you know, that, that world. So, and then a lot more handheld in Corel as well. So there is a grittiness to it that we really wanted to go for. Leather. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah, so you'll okay. see like you get these very wide frames in the Baroness's world, but because of that large format, it doesn't distort on the, it doesn't start to fish eye. So you get all these very straight lines in those massive sets that we had, which was great. Okay. I'm glad I wasn't completely <laughs> insane thinking that there was some of that texture. Is yeah. there anything that you looked at in the original film that you couldn't find a place for in this one? You know what? Amazingly, it's like nearly everything is in there. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a few jokes from Paul that I'll always miss. 
<laughs> and it's always that sort of tipping point of like, where is it? Where is it too much? It's kind of, I think it's probably good to want to have more of them. Yeah. You know, that was about it really. I don't think we, I don't think there's any major, I mean, there's like maybe two, there's like two, I think two scenes in this, in the, like, you know, coming up for about a minute and a half that right. I don't know. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. I'm so happy that like, I was telling Jim, I feel like you've been toiling away for Disney for all these years, making these great movies that that didn't get the exposure they needed. So I'm so thrilled that you have this like giant hit and are going to do <laughs> the sequel. Thank you so much. Just, really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's just really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with us. And uh, appreciate thank you. we can talk you. for the next one. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Thanks guys. Right, See bye. you. Bye. I'm kind of intrigued by Craig's comments about there being how did he put it some narrative real estate between where the first Cruella ends and where the animated version of 101 Dalmatians begins that he seems to think there's a lot of turf there. Yeah. It sounds like he's just very doggedly unintended, <laughs> uh, oh. determined not to, not to remake 101 Dalmatians, which I love. And I think that's one of the fun things about Cruella. And I, I think it's a fun thing about where he says Cruella is, Mm-hmm. sort of now in her journey. So I, I'm excited. I, I I also appreciate that he couldn't quite give us the time frame that it's going to take place in. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it could still be the 70s, but it could also be the 80s. So I'm excited. Bring on Tuella. That's what I say, Jim. <laughs> if they don't call it Tuella, that's money left on the table. <laughs> Thanks to the PR team at Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment for giving us the opportunity to talk with Mr. Gillespie. And Drew, I, I say this sincerely, you are far too young to be making dad jokes. I know. I'm sorry. We have to also say that it is on uh, Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD right now by the time that this comes out, this episode comes out. So mm-hmm. you can go, if you somehow missed Cruella or want to add it to your home video library, you can go get your physical copy as well as a, a digital HD code for, you know, whatever platform you enjoy your uh, digital library on i was at target today running around doing some errands and black widow i guess came out just this past tuesday they had standees for boss baby family mm-hmm. business and i want to say that that i also slipping on out of the wire was uh spirited uh, spirit untamed yeah so get a lot of stuff coming out on blu-ray and dvd but well, anyway, I, I guess that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're you're looking for some fun stuff to listen to, cannot stress enough how ridiculously entertaining and informative Light the Fuse is. You got anything interesting coming up this week? Or Yeah, we did a great interview this past weekend uh, with a, an associate uh, producer on Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation, and he worked with J.J., um, on Star Trek and Star Wars, and he'd tell some interesting stories about that stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're definitely going to want to check out, that out, including who they wanted to play the secretary in Ghost Protocol, the role that Tom Wilkinson ended up with. Huge name. We'd never heard it before, but mm-hmm. apparently they went after this actor pretty pretty zealously. So um, for that anecdote alone, very much worth checking out that conversation, which will be in about three weeks, I believe. So Cool, yeah. cool. But seriously, if you're not following Drew Taylor on social media, you are missing out on a a lot of really insightful, but also a lot of really funny comments. So how would they find you there, Drew? Uh, Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. 
And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media and on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. And I guess that's going to do it for this week. We'll talk to you soon, folks. Okay? Take care.